Hi, I'm Mike Farraher, and welcome to Taste. I spent almost 25 years writing about music and culture for the Irish Voice and IrishCentral.com, as well as This Is Your Brain on Shamrocks, my collection of humorous essays about growing up Irish, Catholic, and guilty in the swamps of New Jersey. During that time, I got to sample the best music and food and films our Celtic culture has to offer. And on Taste, I will be interviewing the tastemakers of modern Irish and Irish-American culture on both sides of the Atlantic. This will be a conversation about the food we grew up with, the exciting transformation of Irish cuisine that is delighting the most discerning culinary palates, and what to expect next in Irish and Irish-American music, theater, and film. And you better be sure we'll wash it all down with a pint or two. Thanks for tuning in and hope this intro awakened your taste buds. Let's get started. Listeners, you are in for a tasty treat on Taste this week as we bring on Sean Brady. Sean Brady is the executive chef and owner of Brady and Fox in Kansas City, Missouri. It was Kansas City where I first met this man. He was cooking at Brady's, the bar he owned, and we were filming McLean Avenue, my first short film there. He fed the cast and crew scones, shepherd's pie, chicken curry like we'd never eaten before. He elevated the food form, and that's why I invited him on to taste, not only on this episode, but also he's been contributing recipes in our blog as well as on our podcast throughout these last weeks. So I love this guy. His humor is as dry as white wine, and without further ado, here he is, Sean Brady. All right, everybody, we have another episode of Taste, and we definitely have a tastemaker here in Sean Brady. And Sean is the owner of the brand new Brady and Fox, which was set up in the old Brookside Poultry Fried Chicken Place uh, on East 63rd in KC Mo, Kansas City, Missouri, for all the folks in the East Coast. And I just first came across Sean when I was doing a little film called McLean Avenue. We flew everybody out to Kansas City and we actually filmed in an old bar that Sean used to own. It was Brady's on Troost. And in filming there for the couple of days, he filmed and fed, I should say, the whole crew and cast for a couple of days. And I think we ate better than we've ever eaten in our lives. It was amazing Irish food, really brought up to a contemporary place. So it's a thrill to have you on, Sean. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. And we still have great fond memories of that. We can't wait to do the next show. There you go. Well, from your lips to God's ears. So I want to just get started. Uh, how did you, now you're from Nina, County Tipperary, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Small little town in Tipperary. And it was so interesting, right? Our lead actress, Jared Glennon uh, from McLean Avenue, did a brilliant job, was also from Nina County Tipperary. Yeah. So like, it's such a remote oh, place. What, what were the chances of that happening? Yeah. You know? She knows, she knew a lot of my family growing up. She grew up with my mom and kind of know, they all know each other. So that's amazing. Now, my family was from Bally Landers uh, County Limerick, which is towards the Tipperary border. So 
I, I have knowledge of that area roughly. And I would imagine, first of all, you know, that was probably farm to table before farm to table was a thing, correct? As, as my mother would say to me, and she says to me every now and again, she's like, I hate going down to the grocery stores. And she says, they have all this special section for organic. She's like, what's this organic? Everything was organic when I was growing up. If you didn't, <laughs> exactly. if it wasn't out to back garden, you didn't get it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And boy, I have memories of digging spuds out of the, the ground. I spent summers at my, my grandmother's house and pulling carrots and pulling spuds and washing them off. And that was and getting, the table. getting getting shouted at for didn't digging the fork too far in and breaking the potatoes. <laughs> well, you got to get I was the prince. I was the prince from the US. So where my uh, aunt who's about my age would always get shouted upon. I was the prince. I, I could do no. Oh, yeah. But still, you're, I, the, you're, the, you're there in your shiny tracksuit and your baseball hat <laughs> and they were all in their wellies. And, <laughs> yeah, and just like never got my hands that dirty in my life. Yeah, but anyway. You showed up spotlessly clean. <laughs> and then cried like a cried like a baby when I got my yeah. my new tracksuit where, dirty. Where, where's the toilet? <laughs> where's the toilet? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, we digress. So. You know, obviously you were guys were farm to table before farm to table was a thing. Uh, just tell me a little bit about the influences growing up. You know, where did you learn to cook and and what were the things in your in your childhood that really influenced you as the chef you are today? Again, I was kind of my sister, my two sisters will always say I was the weirdo in the family that like every kid growing up was I want to be a fireman, I want to be a police officer, I want to be that the, the superhero i want to be superman and i was the weird of going around going i want to be a chef and every time i said it my mom would come up to back of me and hit me a slap in the back of the head and say no you're not because at the time uh chefs weren't put up in the pedestal that we're put up in now um we were the pirates of the industry and we're shoved in the back room and nobody ever wanted to see us and chefs were notorious for partying and drinking and doing whatever they wanted to do um so we had family friends of my dad's that were chefs and she saw that lifestyle and saw that basically they were alcoholics and drinking too much and high stress job and she didn't want that for me um but i was very very determined as a kid and still am kind of get stuck in my way and i decided this is what i want and that's what i wanted to do and there was there was no talking me out of it um so i started going around my town very very small town food scene was not there at all um it was all bar food and it was not very good bar food in the 80s and early 90s um but i go down i'd knock at the back door to bar or the restaurant and say it was bar food there was no real restaurants in my town and there was one hotel but i go down i'd knock at the door and say hey got a job they saw this 12 year old kid and they're like go away you're too young next day i go back down kept doing it and doing it finally one day i got my head far enough in the door that i could see there were a couple of cases of potatoes and some carrots and onions in the corner and i was like hey I'll, do you want me to peel them and the chef was like yeah all right you want to peel them and he took a bucket and turned it upside down and handed me a peeler and said sit there and peel them as a 12 year old kid that was meant to be in school i skipped out of school to do this and let me do it. Went back down the next day, knocked at the door, had my school uniform in my backpack, 
pretenders and they let me back in. I ended up being the youngest cook that ever worked their kitchen. And I started working there for a while. And basically I was meant to be in school. And instead of going to school, I was skipping down there and working in this kitchen until finally my mom had to go to a parent teachers conference at school. And uh, they're like, mm, we haven't seen him in quite a bit. <laughs> and where do you think where do you think that drive i mean apart from just being driven like you know i've got something in my mind and i'm always going to you know go for it but why why specifically a chef like what was the thing that do you have a memory of saying yeah that's it i want to be that was there something like a delicious meal you had or you watched your mom there's there there's no real major meal that ever stood out in my head like our family my wife still kind of jokes about it as like our family tradition of sitting down to eat is the food hits the table, the head goes down, the fork goes up and <laughs> you shovel in until it's all gone. Um, so there was no real conversation. Like mealtime wasn't, it's not like, I don't know, I've from years of traveling and going around and being at like other friends' houses throughout the world and different countries and kind of seeing the traditions around their family mealtime. And I'm like kind of looking back at mine, I'm like, oh, it's kind of more survival of the fit is my dinner table. Um, but there was definitely things like I still have the fondest memory of going out to my grandmother's house and the new potatoes would come into season. And everybody's like, well, what's the difference? But you get the new spring potatoes and they pop up and there are these big flowery potatoes. And I'd sit at the table and eat my body weight in just potatoes. And all we had put on them was butter and salt. And like it was like the simple things like that. My uncle's wife, my aunt one of the best bakers I've ever come across, but never had a recipe in her life, but she made the best breads and I can still smell them. And she kind of gave me some of the recipes and I tried them out, but I could never match the recipes. And I think some of the recipes was because it was the old wood stove burners and the wood stove ovens. And these, these I grew up at my grandmother's house, that wood stove went on. It was never, never went out. It was constantly lit. She wake up in the morning, she struck the ashes out of it a little bit, put some more wood into it, and it kept going all day and all night. And then the flavors that come out of the oven, you could smell. She had a small little house out in the middle of the country, and we'd nearly be driving up the road, and we could smell the bread coming out of the oven. Um, so it was like little things like that that was always there. Like We never ate like kings. We always kind of had to... For the longest time, my mom was a single mom and she raised four kids, worked three jobs. So we had to spread and make things last a lot longer than most people had to do, or probably a lot right. of people in my town had to do. Right. But it kind of made things more interesting for us. And it was like, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, when my mom was working, I kind of turned into the cook in the house. And I would cook the lunch, I would cook the dinner or cook whatever was there for my sisters and my little brother. My grandmother lived with us for a while and she was my biggest fan ever. And I would always say my grandmother, Mrs. F. And it wasn't for the F that usually I used to say it was for Mrs. Fogarty. We always called her Mrs. F. But the woman would eat anything that you could put in front of her. It didn't matter. And I can remember as a 10, 11, 12 year old kid, I put some food in front of her that you, you couldn't you wouldn't give to a dog. Ah, uh, goddamn awful. And she'd sit there and eat every bit of it and tell me it was the best thing ever and tell me, don't listen to anybody. You do what you want to do. Mm. And she was, to me, one of, the, one of the only people that ever kind of said to me, you do what you want to do. Go yeah, ahead. that yeah. kind of gave me the motivation to do it. 
That's great. Well, there's so much to unpack in what you said, right? So the first one is the whole reason I was putting this together, and I know you and I spoke offline about this, is that I had read the Stanley Tucci book, Taste, and he went through these whole elaborate recipes with his mother and you know they were doing like lent and during the lenten season he shaved this eggplant really thin with his mom and bread it and you know they'd make these elaborate meals and i was like we did lenten pizzas on lent in my house and the lenten pizza was like an english muffin ragu sauce and then you'd put like the craft cheese the individually wrapped craft cheese and you'd take that yeah. off and you'd broil that and that was your that was your pizza you know we didn't even go out for italian pizza we rarely did so it, it's not that my mom and dad or my mom anyway and my aunts were not you know bad cooks or anything they were good cooks but to your point you know it was head down you would eat not a lot of talking and you'd get to the tea which is where things really got interesting and people would have the l chat but you know, it was interesting with that is that even in my own house today, my wife, who's Jewish, she knows that a half hour before my mom and dad get here, you have the tea on and you have pretty much the dinner ready, like as they're walking in the door. And there's not an appetizer hour. We do that once in a while. But if anything, it's just a ring of shrimp that my dad loves. And that's it. But it's like you get the dinner done as you're getting there. And then we're going to have a nice prolonged chat over the tea with a digestive biscuit with half of it having the chocolate icing on it or something. Yeah. So, uh, so there, that's... There, was all, there was always two packets of biscuits in the house growing up. There was the one that we had, and then there was the one when people came over. <laughs> <laughs> and which, and was like, and what was the difference? The difference was the ones that we had were probably just the plain digestive biscuits. And the ones when the people guests came over was the chocolate digestive biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget it. My mom would go, go quick, top shelf, grab the, grab the pack. There's a good packet of biscuits up there. Get the good packet of biscuits. No, not those ones, the good ones. <laughs> and as soon as they'd walk out the door, that bag would be tied up and zip tied and put into <laughs> six other bags and buried in the back garden until the next person came over. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. That's so funny. Well, I live in New Jersey and, you know, one of the epicenters of, of Irish food that's out here today is, is in Yonkers, McLean Avenue, which is the, the setting of where my TV show was at the time. And you go there now and first of all the irish grocery stores are now run mostly by pakistanis you know it's just the neighborhood has turned over and yet there's enough in the neighborhood there to support a good old-fashioned irish grocery store and when i go there on the way home from a business trip i literally bring a suitcase and it's like the arrow bars you know, all those sorts of, uh, all the potato, digestive biscuits, potato, 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 cheese and onion, and the cheese and onion, a box of limes, <laughs> box of limes, tea, the mushy peas. Like we yeah. do, we do all of it. And I squirrel those away. First of all, I squirrel those away like a freak, right? Because even my own kids are like, was that an arrow bar uh, wrapper in the garbage? Like, where did that come from? They know an arrow bar or the Smarties, forget it. So, so I, I mean, that's my idyllic memories growing up going to Ireland, right? So what are some of yours? What are some of those brands that kind of bring back things for you? And, and maybe you even might use some of those brands today in your uh, in your restaurant. 
Oh, I do. There's still like, again, it's kind of an Irish and an English thing, but Coleman's mustard, Coleman's spicy mustard, as we call it at the restaurants, the Irish musabi. Um, my favorite is like that stuff will definitely bring the sweats out of you, um, clear your nostrils. But like my favorite is like people come into the restaurant. I'm like, yeah, we got this Coleman's mustard, just tiny little bit on this goes a long way. And they're like, oh, I can handle mustard. And my favorite was one day I give it out to a guy, a small little ramekin, and he picks up the whole spoon of it and pops it in his mouth. And I'm just like, oh God, here we go. And just watch this sweat. You was like, yeah, knocked him on his socks, but things like that. Like there's every now and again, I'll have to go to the store and buy myself. I always have a little stash of potato cheese and onion crisps. Nothing like it. I even hate saying the word crisps or potato chips. Um, and nothing, nothing soaks up the drink like that. You know, you'd, you'd be in the crappiest, dirtiest backwater Irish bar in Ca- County Galway. I've been to plenty of them and they have no food except for one thing. They have like the they have the paper cheese and clips, onion. the paper clips of the che- cheese and onion twi- cheese crisps. and onion and salt and salt and vinegar <laughs> and salt and vinegar and they're in there there's a little string and they have yeah. clothes they have clothes pins on them and that's what's hanging yeah. on the back of the bar and by Jesus by the end of the night there's none of them left you know so no. speaking of Galway one of my favorite things was in this I can't remember the name of this small little bar in Salt Hill in Galway and group of us there and of course Irish boys drinking away and I decide I'm hungry I'm like to the guy I'm like any chance of a sandwich or something like this and he throws a bag of crisps under a bag of potato cheese and onion on the counter and he goes there you go I'm like he's not even a slice of bread or anything and next he goes back and he comes back and he throws up a loaf of Brennan's white bread on the counter and a pound of butter and next I look down the counter and there's six of us all sitting there with the bread and the butter, and we're all making potato, uh, cheese and onion sandwiches sitting at the bar. <laughs> that's that's a good Irish lunch for us. Uh, as well, it was like things like that. That was a highlight for me going to school. My lunch bag. You were the king of the school ground on that day when you opened it up, and there was two slices of bread and a bag of uh, potato cheese and onion in there, and you got to make yourself a chip sandwich as lunch. That's amazing. Uh, well, speaking, yeah. of, speaking of lunches and, and amazing lunches, again, the reason why I wanted you to be the first chef on the on the podcast is that I really, no kidding, when I went to your bar and I remember just so vividly the first time I met you, you were bringing out the scones out of the, the oven and it, they were just the most amazing things. And what I really got out of it was that there was such a simplicity to your cooking and yet it was slightly elevated than when I was used to. Is that kind of a goal of yours? And my, my thing about cooking is I want to keep it as simple as possible, but I definitely want to bring out the flavors. And I love using off cuts of meat that people don't necessarily use and bringing the best out of it. And even like down to my scones, that's a recipe that at this stage is probably over 120 years old. That came from my grandmother and knowing my grandmother she didn't come up with this recipe. She didn't write this recipe. It was handed to her from somebody else. And I have memories of making these scones with her. And we'd sit at our table and she this big plastic bowl. And we'd sit there and with the flour and everything in there. And you cut the butter in with your hand. And then you added the buttermilk and the eggs. And you mixed it all by hand. There was no mixer. And then you rolled it out by hand. 
you cut them there and you turned a cup upside down as your cookie cutter because there was no cookie cutters. And that's how he cooked them. So when I started making the scones a couple of times and being younger, I'd throw everything into the KitchenAid mixer and mix it all up. And I'm just like, it never, it never felt right to me. So I went back to scratch and just started making them by hand. And now I refuse to make them any other way. And there's times when I have to make a couple of thousand scones. And when you're standing there and you're cutting 60 pounds of butter into flour by your hand, your hands soon cramp up. But for me, it's worth it. Um, yeah. And every time those scones come out and I smell them, I see them, I, I smile and my heart warms up because it reminds me of my grandmother. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and we'll, like people, and we'll, people called me and asked me to, oh, instead, because we always use raisins. And they're like, oh, can you put apricots? Can you put apple? Can you put whatever in there? I'm like, no, it's the only recipe I will not change. I'm like, this is my grandmother's Irish scone recipe. If you want it with raisins, great. If you don't, sorry. It's the one time the customer is not right. There you go. And we'll be right back. Taste is sponsored by Career Letters. We are in the midst of the great resignation, which means people are leaving their jobs in record numbers. That's great news for job seekers. Yet most people aren't prepared to meet the moment of opportunity with the current state of their resume and LinkedIn profile. If you are looking to make a career change, we craft customized resumes and LinkedIn profiles that get you noticed in this digital landscape. For more information, including a blog that covers up-to-date hiring trends and interview tips, visit careerletters.com or like Career Letters LinkedIn page, careerletters.com. And we're back with Sean Brady, owner of the brand new Brady and Foxes on East 63rd in Kansas City, Missouri. And for my money, the best Irish chef working on either side of the Atlantic. I love this guy. So pleasure to have you on. So tell me a little bit more about what we can expect. Well, first of all, let me go back, I'd say, and just continue to recreate Brady's on truce because again I remember the chicken curry I remember the different meals that you served us when we were filming there the chicken curry and the fish and chips and again there was nothing there that I hadn't had steak before and steak and Guinness pie the steak and Guinness pie oh my god that was the first night we were there and again there was nothing that I didn't have before but it was all much more elevated so I noticed that uh in Brady and Fox's Fox, no X apostrophe S. Brady and Fox, I noticed that you took over the Brookside Poultry uh, fried chicken place. So I would imagine there's some of that old uh, fried chicken ethos in there. So are you planning to blending that Midwestern fried chicken ethos into the Irish cooking? Like what's your plan for, for Brady and Fox? Uh, so Brady and Fox, we're going to have it. It's going to be an Irish American uh, restaurant and lounge. Um, I'm really lucky. There's myself and Graham Farris, who's been a chef working with me for going on nearly nine, 10 years now. He's got some really good family tradition and family recipes, and we like to kind of marry the two of them together. So you're going to have some traditional American dishes and some traditional Irish dishes. Um, but we're going to elevate them. Like if we're going to do our fried chicken, we've always done a fried chicken where we do a 36 hour maple brine. So it's a maple brine fried chicken. And then we toss it in a lemon pepper seasoning and serve it with like a honey sriracha butter. So little things like that, just to kind of, we, so we what, elevate it, it. It wasn't, 
it wasn't honey sriracha butter that you were reared. <laughs> I know there was no the word sriracha in my house. Like I can still like the word spicy in my house was if I if I need things spicier than mashed potatoes, we can't eat it. Um, like I think the spiciest thing that you'd ever see in, go on and again it always baffled me the Irish people like not really into spicy food and stuff like that but you see them stumbling out of the bar at three o'clock in the morning the first thing they go for is a curry fries <laughs> exactly oh and believe me that's that's been me so so let me ask you this so obviously well the first question I would have for you is when you go back to Nina now I mean, I think that there's definitely been a farm to table movement. And I've, I've noticed myself that the, the game of Irish culinary art, it really is an art now, right? In a lot of these places, like I remember, and you know, I'm 55, so this is fairly recent memory. I remember going into a hotel once and ordering ham and cheese sandwiches and they went back into the kitchen and they came back and they said, we're sorry, we can't do that. We can do ham sandwiches and cheese sandwiches, but we can't mix them together. So we had to get like a ham sandwich and a cheese sandwich and construct it at the table. I, I kid you not, this was in Galway. So you went from like a ham and cheese sandwich was so outside of the realm of possibility there not too long ago. And today, you know, I went back there and there's, creative uses of the potato in the boxty and the boxty games have been elevated that's a yeah. potato pancake for anybody that doesn't notice so what's your experience when you go back to ireland and have you seen the evolution of, of culinary uh art well, the evolution of culinary just exploded and i would say kind of around the late 90s into early 2000 during the celtic tiger boom and it was down to the irish which we are we're kind of nomads we travel we're famous for we we don't conquer, we evade, we invade. You know what I mean? We one Irish person goes to a house and then two weeks later, 20 of us walk out of there. Um, <laughs> so we travel and we've gone around the world and we've during the 80s and that there was a lot of people that left Ireland and the 70s, they, there was nothing in Ireland. So they emigrated, they went to the US, they went to England, they went throughout the world, Australia and all that. And then the economy boomed in Ireland and everybody started coming back. So they brought all that back with them. And there was friends of mine that were chefs that were working in London and working throughout the world. And the economy started booming in Ireland. They're like, we're coming home. So they brought all that knowledge with them. And like, even for me as a chef, I, I've traveled quite a bit and been to quite a few countries around the world. And I've worked everything from kind of I always say from dive bars to Michelin star restaurants. And I will take what I've learned at Michelin star restaurants in classic French cooking. And I've evolved that into Irish cooking. Instead of making how I would make, how my mom would have made a steak and Guinness pie at home. I'm making it more kind of along the lines of a classical French uh, bouillabaisse or like a beef bourguignon. I'm making it kind of that way and kind of bringing out all the flavors as opposed to as my mom would do, throw everything in a pot, put the lid on it, and come back in four hours. That's good to go. <laughs> where, Maybe where, she might. Where you, where you roasted and boiled the like the life out of anything that oh. vegetables, vegetables oh. and meat were all like it was indistinguishable in the pot, wasn't it? Oh, I was like my my favorite and worst memories is 
my mom would go home and like that one time or maybe two times a year for real lucky there was that nice big Sunday roast of nice big roast beef and she'd take it out of the fridge put it straight onto a roasting tray no salt no nodding onto it and straight into the oven about four or five hours later this black ball of something came out of the oven and when it was black it was cooked and it was cooked to yeah chart and I remember being a young chef 17, 18, I'd moved out of home and come home for Christmas. I remember one year I come home and I had this beautiful prime rib and I was all super excited about this cooking this prime rib. I was like the first real kind of upscale dinner I was making for my family as a young chef. And I was proud as beaming from ear to ear to make this. Spent a lot of time, took it out of the fridge four or five hours before we cook it, let it come up to room temperature, preheated the oven. I'm showing my mom how to do all of this. And she's looking at me like I'm 12 different types of crazy. Take it out of the oven, nice, medium, rare. And I go to carve into it after letting it rest and everybody in my house starts screaming. It's raw. It's cooked. We're all going to die. So what do I do? I cut out myself a nice little centerpiece, put it on a plate and I throw it back in the oven. I say, Joe, you know F all of you. When it's black, you could do whatever you want with it. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, even now, I'm my specialty is London broil, you know, and I grill it and I marinate it and everything else like that. I usually use soy or garlic or or brown sugar, that kind of thing. And <clears throat> when I make it now, you know, my father, who's 87, he'll say, "Geez, I don't know how you get that meat that good, like, but." you know, it's just so tender and it's gorgeous. And the answer is very simple. It's called medium well or medium rare. There's a medium there. You know, there's rare, then there's medium rare, then there's medium well, and then there's well. They only know well or well or burned or whatever. Like you don't, you don't have to change the chemical compound of the beef before you eat it (laughs) by cooking it. One of my favorite stories is one of my good friends from back home. He was over, he came over to visit a friend of ours out in California and he's country boy. And he went out for dinner and he's kind of, he's a a meat and potatoes boy. And that's all he ever eats is he's piece of meat and he's potatoes. But he went out for dinner and my friend was like, well, I'm going to take him somewhere where simple, easy. So I said, I take him to a steakhouse. Can't, can't go around. Bring him into some sort of steakhouse, and my friend's there, and the server goes to him. So, how would you like your steak cooked? My buddy says he just shut down. He just he freaked out. He's just like, I don't know. Um, you know, you want to do it in like a pan or something? <laughs> my other friend's like, No, like what temperature do you want to cook that? He's like, I, I don't know. Like, what do you mean, what temperature? Like, like just just but just cooking. <laughs> yeah, it was my favorite story. It's like, how would you like your steak cooked? I don't know, like in a, in a saute pan. <laughs> so has your has your family been over to your restaurants now? And if they have they seen what or tasted tasted as we would say here in this podcast, tasted? Have they tasted your food now? And what do they think of what you do what you're doing now? Oh yeah, Dave. All my family have been over. I think, yeah, everybody's been over except for one of my sister, my older sister. Um, but yeah, they, they've they been in my restaurants that I worked at and ran in Dublin as well. And and um, I kind of, my sister every Christmas when we uh, do our Zoom and all that, and we do our calls at Christmas, my sister cries every Christmas. She's like, well, Christmas dinner is just not the same anymore. Because mm. I would always cook the Christmas dinner. 
that was the big highlight that because we I'd go all out and we do appetizers like so again there there has changed so much even my mom like who's a straight up country woman grew up in the middle of nowhere straight from farm to table when you talk farm to table like she surprises me every time I see her well what she'll order and what she'll eat like she'll order some stuff when we got and I'm like you're really ordering that do you know what Kim was <laughs> you know what I mean I'm like and I know she doesn't but she's she's willing to try it which always makes me happy and are they trying to like as we would say in Ireland are they trying to put on airs when you come home like well the chef's coming home we better up our game when he comes in the door or, or they just relinquish the kitchen to you when you come home there's a little bit of both so my mom up in the game which I'm what 42 years old and I tell her Every single time, I hate them. I despise them. I don't like them. Mushy peas. I don't like mushy peas. But anytime I go home, within 30 minutes of me walking in the door, she's got a pot of mushy peas soaking for dinner for tomorrow. And I'm like, Mom, I don't like them. She's like, no, you love them. Like, no, that's my younger brother. No, you love them. (laughs) I'm like, no, I know what I like. (laughs) Um, Same thing with the Bisto gravy. Oh my God, the Bisto gravy! Uh, yeah, and it makes my skin crawl just even thinking of it. I've just, but every time I go home, my mom will always have a brand new packet of Bisto gravy, and the first thing I do is there's a little cabinet over at the stove, and I open it up and I see the Bisto, and I take it out and I throw it straight in the trash, <laughs> and I close it up and I say nothing, and I do it every time without. And that evening she's making dinner. She's like, I know there's Bisto somewhere. I went, I bought the Bisto, especially because I knew you love it. <laughs> I know you love the Bisto, and I went and I bought a new one. <laughs> and I'm like, this, no, it's okay. I'll make some fresh gravy. Let me do it. <laughs> so for this grand opening of Brady and Fox, I think it's safe to say that there will be no mushy peas nor Bisto on the menu. There will be no marrow fat, the dry mushy peas. We'll probably do my version of mushy peas. And what does that look like? So I basically, so mushy peas growing up, they're a dry marafat pea that you soak in water in a sodium solution overnight. When you cook them, they're basically going to come out the same color as my top. They're gray. And your whole house just smells of them and everything. Texture, I've never been a fan of them. So what I do is I take a frozen English pea and I cook them in a little bit of heavy cream, butter, some sea salt and black pepper. And then I just kind of not puree them up real fine like baby food but just kind of pulse them in the blender um just to give them texture and then finish them with a bit of fresh mint mm. and that is why my friends listeners i wanted this man to be on the podcast first and by the way he is my partner in this endeavor so this will not be the last that you hear from sean brady but for now we're going to call that a day and just say thanks, Sean, for everything you're doing to elevate Celtic cuisine here in the States. And why don't you just give us a little bit of a shout out as to how people get a hold of you and the address of Brady and Fox or any websites you have, Instagram, that kind of thing. Yeah, so we're getting ready to open up here in, uh, very soon. Uh, it's going to be Brady and Fox. We're going to open up here at 63rd and Rock Hill and Brookside in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, check out our website. It's going to be bradyandfox.com. We'll also be on Facebook and Twitter, um, Brady and Fox. Just search Brady and Fox KC and we'll show up. We should be there and everything. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Sean, for showing up and for being part of Taste. And I wish yeah. you all the best of luck on the opening of your restaurant. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Look forward to it. and Can't wait to talk soon. All right. An inviting smile. That's what people hear in my voice, and that's usually the tone that people want associated with their brand. Sure, I can steam up the windows with a sexy cadence. Even that can be delivered with a smile. You need a girl next door? I'm your girl. Commercials, narrations, explainer videos, even phone systems. I'll bring the smile to your brand. Check out my brand new website, smilingvoice.com. It's about time we had a chef on this culinary podcast, don't you think? And I couldn't think of a better guy to kick that off than Sean Brady. We have many other chefs coming up in the weeks ahead. Taste has been brought to you by This Is Your Brain on Shamrocks Productions with a partnership with Irish Central. And of course, always produced by my lovely wife, Barbara, the smiling voice. I love you, honey. We'll see you next week.